Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow Day Beautiful on all social media at Day Beautiful. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Today's guest has previously released a short story collection called Where We Go When All We Were Is Gone. His work has appeared in or is forthcoming in conjunctions, the Southern Review, Tin House, Eye Review, and elsewhere. He teaches creative writing at St. Olaf College and the Rainier Writing Workshop Low Residency MFA program and lives in Minneapolis. He is the author of How High We Go in the Dark. His name is Sequoia Nagamatsu. Hey Sequoia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Adam. Of course. I I loved your book, How High We Go in the Dark. I think I first heard of it. I know Matt Bell blurbed it, and I think mm-hmm, I saw him right. tweet about it. Um, I had uh, I lived in Arizona as well for a long time, so I had met him numerous times mm-hmm. in the Arizona literary scene. Um, and whenever Matt Bell says something's good, I usually trust it. <laughs> for, sure, for sure, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I've been following his career for quite a long mm-hmm. time, and he's never let me down. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, what is How High We Go in the Dark? Tell readers a little bit about Ooh, it from your perspective. It's a big question. Um, <laughs> it's um, a multi-generational journey. Um, that follows a cast of characters, uh, a linked cast of characters over, um, you know, several decades and, and really over hundreds of years or thousands of years, if you want to be really technical about it, um, as they navigate the aftermath of a climate plague. Um, and it's largely um, follows um, these characters everyday lives. Um, so it never really privileges the virus or kind of societal reactions to to the plague. Um, it really is at its core about um, human beings, about humanity, about smaller communities, holding on to hope, finding connections, uh, grieving, uh, reimagining grief, and, um, you know, rethinking um, how they'll move forward uh, and embrace new futures. And one thing that I found fascinating about this is obviously our current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic still. People think it's over, but it's not. Obviously, you have been writing this for a while. It didn't, did, it right. didn't come from, you know, March 2020, the first right. moments of COVID. Um, I guess take us back to when you first started writing it. I just want to, what interested you about using like a plague as a backdrop at sure. first? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the, the, this novel's um, trajectory is, is, you know, the earliest seeds began in 2008, you know, so, you know, over 10 years. And at that point, I didn't know I was writing this novel. I was still determining whether or not I wanted to be a writer. Um, and, you know, so it, it did begin as kind of, you know, individual short stories at first. And, you know, as I kept writing more, um, I began to be a little bit more intentional about um, overarching themes about technologies, about maybe even recurring characters down the line. Um, but the plague wasn't a part of the novel at all uh, for for much of the trajectory. And I think maybe that actually sort of bleeds through because ultimately, you know, I don't really, you know, once once I introduce the plague, <laughs> I, I kind of forget about it. You know, it's sort of burning in the background, influencing the lives certainly, but but it never sort of takes center stage. Um, and that's because the plague didn't become part of my research and part of the, the book until about 2014, <laughs> you know, so several years had passed. 
um, you know, the initial seed for the book really revolved around grief and um, rethinking our relationship with death, um, you know, including funerary practices, um, being, I think, very upfront about the capitalistic nature of um, how we are often forced to deal with death. You know, we often, you know, you cry and are, you know, sad when somebody that you love dies, but you often aren't allowed space to actually honor that person in the way that you probably want to, because you have to organize a funeral and you have to pay bills. Um, and I think it's, you know, incredibly sad that we've kind of moved into this space where that's become more become normalized. So a lot of those early stories were really kind of wanting to kind of wrestle with this, these alternative spaces, these alternative forms of, of saying goodbye. Um, and, you know, I was living in Japan at the time, and, and here you have a country that's having to deal with a very large elderly population. You know, so in Tokyo, funerary skyscrapers do exist, and there are, you know, very kind of, you know, innovative ways of, um, you know, beyond burial and cremation, um, you know, thinking about how we deal with our bodies, but also how families can, um, you know, honor, uh, honor, honor their family members. Yeah, and, and as, as the book nears publication, so we're talking like right before your book comes out, have you mm -hmm. noticed more people or, or more media or more friends who may have read it focusing on like the idea of the plague, even though it's in the back burner for you and not really what the book was about because right. of, you know, the current situation and the Station sure. Eleven, the TV show is out. Oh, so yeah. I think everyone's yeah. thinking about it a lot. I mean, you know, I, I think it's perfectly natural and understandable to kind of bring that up. And, you know, I get it. It's there's it's there's a plague element in, in the novel. It is part of the thread, yeah. um, you know, um, but there's also kind of the thread of grief and communities. There is another kind of cosmic <laughs> otherworldly thread that's kind of there. That's a bit of a spoiler. So I won't talk too much about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I understand why people are kind of calling the book prophetic and prescient um, and you know, in the early days of the co of COVID, my agent and I were even having a conversation about: Do we even want to send this book out now? Yeah. You know, and I had I had been um, you know working on this book you know for for a while, and I was like, on the one hand, as a writer, I was like, oh, I, I've been I've been working on this for a long time. My agent finally said it's ready, and then COVID hits. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and so I, I want you know, to submit the, the the book out there, but I'm also afraid and anxious and, you know, incredibly, de incredibly depressed about, you know, what, what does this mean? Like, are editors going to just say no? Are, mm -hmm. are they just not going to get it? You know, uh, fortunately, a lot of editors, a lot of people that read the book early on understood the vision for yeah. the book. And, and, you know, we chose our, our partner as well. We chose our talking points well. And, you know, I would say that the majority of people kind of understand what this book is, even if we even if we do have to have that conversation, because um, I think a lot of readers might not, you know, they're not going to understand the entire history. So part of interviews like this, part of a lot of review coverage is going to, you know, sort of be nodding at the, at the trajectory of the novel and, um, you know, giving folks a little bit more context. And that's why I started with, I remember I was talking to, so I work at Tattered Cover, I'm the director mm -hmm. of events. I was talking to our front list buyer, um, who we talk about debuts a lot. She's really helpful. And I, I was telling her, read this book. I loved it. And I had like, not forgotten the plague was obviously a part mm -hmm. of the novel, right. but that's not like how I pitched it to her. Yeah. And she's like, God, I don't know. Um, she was like talking about like, I don't know if I can get through it. Like how depressing mm -hmm. does it get? 
And I was like, it's not really like it's like I forgot. And 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 that and that that, that makes sense that it was a thread that was there, but wasn't the driving force of your writing. It was mm-hmm. more about grief. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, you know, um, of course, like downplay that uh, it, it can be a difficult read, you know, yeah. for, for some yeah. people, depending on your experiences and um you know but but i was always you know especially as as i was editing it Posell, you know very cognizant to make sure that like some hope was in every chapter you know and that that it would compound slowly by the time you got to the end um you know but i think you know i was reading this article this morning about station 11 and emily st john mandel's kind of reaction to the adaptation that she acknowledges as well that you know um some people are going to be embracing this embracing the narrative a pandemic narrative um, even though it's like not really a pandemic narrative um, and they'll find catharsis in sort of watching a show like that. And some people might not be ready. And, and you know, people deal with, um, you know, our, our current moment in different ways. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm empathetic to that. Mm-hmm. And, and not to focus too much longer on it, but I am interested in the writing process. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, you know, you and your agent discuss you know is this the right time to send it out mm-hmm. once you did find you know the publisher and editor and etc um what was that like was there ever th- points where you thought about changing like the backdrop changing mm-hmm. the plague or was that ever in consideration i mean i thought about it but at that point it had become such an intrinsic part of like you know what i was was what i was doing um and but what i did do is that i i, I tried to make sure that there weren't any like you know too many direct parallels just by accident, you know, by coincidence, to COVID, you know, so certain vocabulary that we might be using in our reality, face masks, social distancing, and if there's anything like that, I took it out, or I diminished it greatly, because I, I wanted, you know, obviously readers to immerse themselves in this world, um, and, and not be, you know, needlessly triggered, um, you know, and, and reminded of COVID. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned was these kind of started as short stories, uh, but you weren't even sure you're writing a novel. You have previously released a short story collection. Right. Um, when did this? Sh- when did you realize that it was shifting into novel form or a novel? Right. Um, I would say that I, I, I kind of assume, I kind of uh, saw it becoming kind of like a linked collection that was kind of veering in that territory probably after I had like probably half of it written more than a little bit more than half of it written I mean there's a lot of thematic threads it was kind of becoming coalescing into something else that was different from my first collection um but I think it wasn't really until I started working with my agent in like I don't know 2016 or something 2017 um and really kind of thinking about the structure of this um where we actually started to use the word novel you know, and and I think you know my agent Annie Huang at um, Isha Pandey Literary um, said something along the lines of "It doesn't feel right to call this a collection." You know, like when we're dealing with time scales of like hundreds and thousands of years. <laughs> you know, like when 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 you're starting to think about kind of the interconnect interconnectedness of of these characters, it, it, it feels weird to call it a collection. Uh, there's kind of a bigness to the narrative, and I agreed with that, and kind of. Our, my work and kind of the work of, you know, my editor as well, kind of Jessica Williams at William Morrow, particularly, um, and her kind of eagle eyes, we really try to deepen the connections and, um, you know, think about, you know, how else can we nod at the evolution of society, you know, as generations passed, 
Um, what are the Easter eggs that I could include in each chapter that nods at this kind of other cosmic thread that sort of culminates and really pulls things together in that last chapter. Um, and that's kind of how I know like how how closely somebody has read this novel. You know, if, if that last chapter makes sense to you or if it's like, what, what, what the hell went on? Is then, then I kind of like know, like, you know, like how closely you're kind of paying attention to certain things, um, which I think is great because it's a very kaleidoscopic narrative. Um, I think there's kind of like, you know, you can probably read a chapter and, and, and feel like, feel fulfilled in that. But if you're wanting kind of those other connections and if you're a reader that really appreciates a little bit more experimentation or more layers in your books, then that's there for you as well. Structurally with the chapters, um, was there a lot of tweaking you had to do to change them from like a short story structure to a more larger base? Ah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, like uh, the seeds go back to 2008. The oldest story in the book was the Melancholy Nights chapter. Um, the original title for that chapter was Melancholy Nights in a Tokyo Internet Cafe, which seems kind of kind of archaic now. So I, I, I um, obviously um, leveled up the technology there <laughs> to to kind of be virtual reality. Um, the the last story, the last chapter I wrote for the novel was actually the first chapter, um, and um, you know for that one it's it's one of the longer chapters i think it's like over 30 pages long it's like almost 40 pages long um and um you know i i wanted the reader to be adequately immersed <laughs> in 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 the novel in the world uh before moving on so you know the length of that i think is a little bit intentional and um i needed to make sure that there was a very strong core origin story um, not only for the plague, the Arctic plague, but also for this character who's immortal <laughs> that kind of like runs through the novel. And, um, you know, even though the reader might not immediately kind of understand all of those elements after reading that first chapter, um, you know, I, I needed to make sure that there was a cornerstone that readers could kind of fall back on later on. And, and one thing, not to keep bringing up Emily St. John Mandel Station all yeah, them, yeah, but one thing, yeah. <laughs> but because, I'm sorry, and I am sorry, because I'm sure you're sick of it, but um, I was re just recently rereading like articles mm -hmm. about Station Eleven, because I haven't read it since it came out, um, right. about how she has talked about like the idea of literary fiction for science fiction, uh -huh. and how, how the science fiction label has followed her throughout her career. Yeah, Your book is very literary fiction with sci science fiction, yeah. fiction tension too. Do you think right. about that at all when you're writing? Oh. Is, is that on your mind? When I'm writing, not really, because, okay. you know, um, I think at some point it's, it's smart for writers to think about those labels and to think about how they're in dialogue with audiences that have certain preconceptions about categories. Um, but, um, you know, as I'm actively drafting or coming up with story ideas or a book idea, I don't really think about it a whole lot you know, um, I'll have that conversation with an editor or my agent. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody that, you know, I've given this lecture and I, I, give, I think I gave a lecture like this for an MFA program that I teach for. I, I've given this letter, lecture at Catapult, um, the messiness of genre categories and, you know, kind of the, the sort of, you know, Cliff Notes version of that is that, yeah, there are certain, um, you know, genre traits that are inherent to something like science fiction or to fantasy. Um, but by and large, a lot of the um, 
you know, preconceptions and um, elements that we might ascribe to those categories have been crumbling over the years. And um, when we talk about who is a science fiction writer or who is a literary writer, I think oftentimes what we're talking about are communities. You know, does this, did this person rise through the MFA ecosystem or through Clarion? Did this person publish a little bit more in the Paris Review and the Iowa Review? Or did they publish a little bit more in Lightspeed and Asimov's and Clark's World? Um, but if you take a look at some of these stories that are in these journals, increasingly so, I was like, I could see the story in the Paris Review or in some of these hard genre magazines. Um, and John Joseph Adams, who edits, you know, the best American science fiction and fantasy, if you take a look at the stories included in there, if, if I didn't see the labels or if I didn't see the table of contents of the journals that those stories were included in, I wouldn't know. You know, sometimes I'd be like, this could be a Paris Review story for all I know. Yeah. And, and do you feel just while we're on the subject that these labels and, and, and like those two kind of worlds you were talking about, do you think they'll they'll continue to stay strong as two pillars or are we really moving towards where literary fiction is going to be published in Asimov's, et cetera? Like, is it going to like collapse or do you kind of still see like the comp? Yeah. I don't think that's going to completely, mm-hmm. completely collapse. Cause I mean, as I said, you know, there are, there are certain things, certain things that are unique to these communities and to like certain, um, if you want to call it hard, hard science fiction or hard fantasy, certain things about those communities that are going to remain there. Um, you know, in the same way that there are certain kinds of, stylistic tendencies that tend to be, you know, tend to fall into what you might want to call a literary camp, you know? Um, And so I I don't think it's going to collapse completely. I do wish there was more dialogue (laughs) between these camps, um, you know, in the spirit of kind of just open conversation and learning from each other. I I, I think I'm starting to see that a little bit more. Um, You know, it's not so much, uh, you know, we're sci-fi and you're literary. It's, it's, so I, I hope we see more of that in the future. Yeah, one thing I've noticed with Day Beautiful, just my selections, whenever I do think I'm reading a science fiction book or, uh, you know, a thriller or a romance, and I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, I look it up and it's like strictly in like the literary fiction camp. And that, I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to di- not diversify the genres I cover, mm-hmm. but it's like, I find it interesting. Like what I think is in one camp is in a different camp, et cetera, oh, for or back sure. or forth. Yeah. It's so interesting to me. Um, and then going back to how high we go in the dark um, and then your first year collection, where we, are, where we go when all we, all we were is gone. Sorry, yeah, I stumbled yeah. over that. The, ne- um, the next novel has two words. So yes, I'm, that's I'm, what I was going <laughs> to I was going to jokingly ask, yes, uh, you love long titles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, at this point, yeah. But uh, yeah, the next novel is, is at least right now called Girl Zero. So um, folks will have an easier time having it roll off the tongue. <laughs> I can't wait to see it like add yeah. five words to it though. Right, yeah. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit just about um, the publication process because mm-hmm. um, your short story collection was on Black Lawrence Press, a smaller press. Uh, sure. This is on William Morrow, a bigger press. Um, I guess, can you just talk? Cause I know a lot of like uh, people who like email me are they, they want certain questions asked and they do talk about like the different types of presses. Can you talk about your experiences on both the similarities, the differences? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like I, I, I was talking to some agents kind of, you know, prior to where we go when all we were is gone, just kind of based on like, you know, journal publications and I queried some, but I think in retrospect, that was always going to be a small press book or a university press book. It's short. 
it's super weird. It's formally innovative. Um, so there wasn't, it, it doesn't, you know, it was never going to have like a broad commercial appeal, you know? And um, I think, you know, I, I really, I kind of realized that, you know, as I was talking to agents during that process, um, but with a small press or university press, I think writers need to be aware of a few things. Um, like one, you know, like with the, with a book like that, you know, I think um, they're going to be good at approaching who your audience is. And that audience is going to be by, you know, definition smaller, right? People that are into weird writing or into, you know, maybe quieter, less, less commercial books. Um, but they're also not going to have the firepower of obviously a larger press or the financial backing of a large press. So that means a little, little to no advance. That means, um, you know, as, as much as they're going to help you, um, with things like maybe email blasts or, or reaching kind of whoever is on their list, um, the marketing is probably going to stop there. Right. And they're not going to have the resources to, you know, publish or, or print a lot of arcs to send to reviewers, to newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. But even if they did, a lot of review outlets are closed <laughs> to small presses, independent presses. Outside, you know, with the exception of the maybe places like Grey Wolf and Coffee House and, you know, um, I'm not sure if you even want to call Grove Atlantic or Bloomsbury, you know, small presses, but, you know, um, but a lot of uh, review outlets will not, um, or I should say very rarely will they take on reviews um, or, or, or cover um, um, small presses or university presses. So that's another reality. Um, and so, you know, that process was, I think, um, very educational because I, I had to do a lot of it on my own. You know, like I was sending out the mailers, I was, you know, contacting potential review outlets. Um, and I think through that, I also was just building my own community. It gave me an excuse to talk to other writers, to talk to journal editors, to go to like university literary festivals that kind of focused on smaller presses and university presses. So I think, you know, where we go, you know, one, it gave me my tenure track job. Um, like I needed a book to apply to those jobs and it came like at the last minute. Um, uh, but it also gave me um, a more robust literary community. It gave me an excuse to kind of get to know a lot of people. And I think that actually played a, you know, a role in, um, you know, the sale of, of, of uh, how high we go in the dark, you know, because I had a little bit more of a platform and, um, you know, when it came time to things like asking people for blurbs or, um, you know, interviews or, or, or reviews, oftentimes I didn't really need to like ask because people were already doing it, you know? Um, and I think that's kind of like where you want to be as a writer. You don't want to be transactional. You know, you want to kind of exist in the community, be supportive and just be there and be present. Um, so you're not kind of just like appearing from nowhere and asking for favors that people don't really want to entertain because you're just some kind of some random, you know, something that's kind of wanting attention without having done the work of actually giving back. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just find it so interesting. Like exactly what you said, um, outlets may not be reading or wanting to review or interview smaller press. It's, it's the reality of it, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. yeah. And even Day Beautiful, I find myself not, like, it's not intentional, but not covering as much 
smaller press because mm-hmm. I'm not getting an arc sent to me. I'm not getting a, a email from a publicist into right. my inbox, like telling me this book. So a lot of the smaller press, and this is, if anyone's out there listening and then you're on a smaller press, just DM me. I might not get to it right away, but you know, like that's the best way to, mm-hmm. you have to, you have to network um, when you're on a smaller press more so. Right. Um, I'm curious, what have you been reading? What have you been enjoying? So your book's coming out by the time this podcast is out, it's going to be out, but have you had time to read during the publicity, during the editing? During oh yeah. This? I mean, yeah, I mean, um, I, I probably can't say a whole lot about it until like their awards or awards are announced, but I've been reading a ton. Um, I was, I was one of the judges for, um, the pen open book award. So I, I, that really kind of just forced me to, um, you know, I think be a little bit broader than I would have been, you know, just in just reading like more poetry collections and, and more, more nonfiction, um, more kind of just like journalistic writing. Um, but also just like a lot of wonderful novels. Um, I think this, this, you know, releasing a, a book, I think, especially for the pandemic has also, I think, brought writers closer together <laughs> in a weird way. You've kind of form a kind of cohort of people that are kind of in the shit together. Um, and, and so, you know, um, one book that I've been um, reading and, you know, is, is Brown Girls by um, Daphne Plasti um, Andreatis. And um, a little history with this one is I've actually, I actually selected an excerpt of this for a fellowship a few years ago um, for the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing. And um, I'm, I'm very slow to make connections. <laughs> I was like, where did I read this before? And then it turned out that I had selected this as for, for this fellowship, um, but this is wonderful and it's getting a lot of buzz. Um, another book that, um, you know, I, I, I started, you know, um, flipping through the other night is Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century. It's a short story collection by Kim Fu. Um, I imagine I'll start getting a lot more attention very soon. Um, I think I'm doing an event with Kim at the Asian American Writers Workshop um, in a little bit here. Um, and so I'm looking forward to um, asking her a little bit more, more about the construction of this. Um, I guess another book that um, I really, really loved came out earlier this year is Appleseed by, by Matt Bell. Um, and again, you know, I think Matt Bell was just kind of a writer that I saw um, interacting with the community in very positive ways very early in his career. You know, uh, even before he published his first collection with Keyhole, like a tiny, tiny press. And, um, you know, he was just doing a, so many book reviews and being a very supportive presence. And so, you know, beyond kind of like his sort of genre pushing, bending, innovative work, um, you know, he's always been, I think, a writer that um, I, I cite as an example to my students of like how you want to exist in the space. Um, I'll just plug one more a writer. Um, and this is a writer that I've kind of interacted with in, in various capacities over the years. He was kind of like another cohort person. Like for my first book, we did a lot of events together and that's uh, Allegra Hyde's um, Eleutheria. Um, it's coming out later this spring, and it's kind of a sort of centers around, you know, climate change and climate activism, and I'm really looking forward to it. Another very sort of genre daring writer. Yeah, definitely. And I believe Allegra's 
is a debut novel. She does yeah. have a short story mm-hmm. collection, right? Similar to you, and, and yeah. mm-hmm. so she'll definitely be covered on Debutiful. I believe I've requested uh, yeah. an arc. It's been on my radar. Um, you mentioned Girl Zero, your upcoming mm-hmm. book, and just a quick question. I'm, I don't not going to ask you to go into it. A novel or short story collection? That's a novel. Okay. Um, yeah, and um, you know, like very briefly, it sort of centers around this family who lose their daughter, and um, kind of in this world, sort of like mythical kind of like cryptid creatures actually exist or very rare going going extinct and the father uh travels to the wilds of japan and chooses to basically resurrect his daughter via the help of a shapeshifter and so they're this family this couple is bringing up uh this replacement daughter and um the father acknowledges what they've done the mother not so much the you know she's choosing to believe that their father their daughter never died and this girl, this girl Zero, um, is navigating this girl that she's supposed to be, like this couple's coaching their daughter, like, this is what you're supposed to behave like. This is what you like. These are their, these are your favorite places. Um, but she also is becoming her own person. And so it's kind of this um, dialogue between identities and it's kind of this sort of strange coming of age story. Thank you to Sequoia for talking about How High We Go in the Dark, which is out now, and for previewing his upcoming novel that he's currently working on. You can find him on Twitter at SequoiaN and on Instagram at Sequoia.N. His website is hisfirstandlastname.com, SequoiaNagamatsu.com. You can find Daybeautiful at Daybeautiful.net and on all social, social media, excuse me, at Daybeautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Daybeautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs>